Hello. 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 And welcome, welcome to, to LaughBox. LaughBox, the podcast for the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. And now, here's your host, Chip Lutz. Hello, friends. Here we are, ready for another action-packed episode of Laugh Box. I hope this episode finds you well. Just doing as good as you can do under the current circumstances that we're facing. And let's face it, we're facing an unprecedented amount of crap in the world. But that doesn't mean we have to succumb to it. So, we at ATH, we're bringing you the second edition of Viral Humor 2. This time I'm talking to Dr. Steve Soltenhoff. I love this guy. I tell you what, I still refer to my notes from my first conference back in 2006. He just blew me away. Uh, we talk about how to make it through the long haul in this current pandemic uh, using humor. He talks about anxiety. He talks about hope. He talks about pretty much everything you need to know to make it through. So I want you to kick back, take some notes, and enjoy. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to LaughBox. I am super stoked today because I get to talk to my good friend, Dr. Steve Soltanoff. Let me tell you about this guy right here. On my first conference for ATH back in 2006, I still refer to my notes from this guy's session. Love me some Steve Soltanoff. So happy to have you on the show. Big cheers to you. Welcome, my friend. Thanks, Chip. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited. Well, the pleasure is all mine. Um, I always enjoy talking to you and uh, gaining some insights from your enormous brain. Uh, but for the listeners, if you could give them a little bit of background on who Dr. Steve is. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, okay. I'm a traditionally trained psychotherapist, sometimes a little bit more on the psycho side than the therapist <laughs> side. And through my career, I have been a practicing clinical psychologist for most of my career, probably over 30 years in practice. And in addition to practicing, I've been a professor at different universities. Uh, actually, I've been, a, I've been an instructor, professor at uh, San Francisco State University, Vista College, Merritt College, Mills College, Cal State University, Long Beach, Cal State uh, uh, University, Mingus Hills, UC Irvine, UC Berkeley, and uh, for the last 30-some years, Pepperdine University. Most of my friends think of me as a guy who really has trouble holding down a job. <laughs> That's quite a list of colleges. Holy crap. <laughs> I, knew about, I knew about Pepperdine, but I didn't know about all the other ones. Holy, that's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot of experience underneath your belt. Like I, you know, like I said, I'm really excited to have you on the show. I mean, uh, you're on in the very early stages of the podcast. So if you people haven't heard that episode, make sure you go back and take a listen because it's worth a listen. But today we're, you know, having kind of like the second installment of talking about uh, humor and coronavirus, things that we're seeing, things that are going on. Um, and so I'm just going to kind of open up the conversation as as far as like. From your perspective as you know, a psychologist and an educator, what are some of the things that you've seen or been maybe amazed by as uh, you've seen you know, humor used during what we're currently going through? 
Well, I think, Chip, to begin with, uh, there have been a lot of things that I've seen. The biggest thing is the toilet paper jokes and the toilet paper humor, the cartoons. I have a collection probably now of maybe 50 to 75 either jokes or cartoons just about toilet paper. So that's been a shock. Who would have ever thought that toilet paper would be so humorous? Right. Right. And, and, and I really get it because at the beginning of the crisis, I went out and my toilet paper supply here at home was not, my supply was low, but not terrible. So I was going out to get some toilet paper and it was all gone. Mm-hmm. And now for the past three weeks, every time I've gone to any store shopping, I always check and there has never been any toilet paper on the shelves. So it's, it's kind of really right in my face, as well as getting all the humor about it. And I don't know what other people in the country are experiencing, but it's kind of crazy. It is kind of crazy. What's funny is that I didn't buy into like uh, going and stocking up on, of all things, toilet paper. But I actually needed some a few weeks ago. And I went to the store and all they had were, was like the, um, the really, really off brand, and, uh, which truthfully can second just paper towels. Um, <laughs> this stuff is like, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's some rough stuff. I'm going to come out here, come out of this with some chafing, but, um, it, it certainly was a, a unique experience for me going to the store and just seeing how many things were gone. And you know, that still to this day, the store that's close to my house has no toilet paper and it's like, well, luckily I have some good to go. Yeah. It's, yeah. Just crazy. It is crazy. Now I, Something I like a byproduct of all this. I say, you know, been a lot of uh, the toilet paper jokes. I, you know, uh, jokes about people staying in, you know, homeschooling their kids. I saw one uh, so funny because gas is so cheap. And I saw a meme yesterday that says, anybody else notice that your car is getting three weeks to the gallon? And I was like, yeah, I haven't, I haven't gotten gas for weeks. I mean, that, yeah, absolutely. Because I haven't gone anywhere. Um, and so, I mean, it's been, an, for me, an interesting phenomenon on how people have been using so much humor to kind of cope with different things in today's age of social media, um, that it's certainly much more shareable since we can't be together. People are finding different ways to share their humor. Uh, what are some thoughts on that, that, that communal aspect of humor? Well, one of the big things is the issue of social distancing versus social bonding. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about our social distancing, really what we're talking about is physical distancing. Mm -hmm. But I I like that the government called it social distancing, because if you called it physical distancing, I don't think it would have the broader impact of understanding the social social nature of how important distancing is. Mm -hmm. When, When we talk about humor, humor is one of the powerful social bonds that we like people that offer us humor at the top in the top five criteria for a good relationship almost always people say sense of humor and in many surveys sense of humor comes higher than having a good sex life so sense of humor is really important for the the, uh, i think i don't don't even know who said it but to become a social lubricant to help people to bond. And the bonding aspect of humor, in fact, the social connection is one area of what makes using humor safe or not safe. Okay. Uh, Chip, I'm getting an echo. Are you getting that? I am not getting an echo. Okay, so as long as you're good, I, I, I'm good. I'm good, I'm good, we'll keep on going. Yeah, because okay. you're right on track with stuff I would hit. We're good. So often we wonder, when is it time to use humor in, in um, 
I'm, I'm again getting this echo, so I'm distracted. I'm going to try turning down my volume here a little bit. I, maybe that'll help. Yeah, that's okay. got it. Okay, so when we look at when is it okay to use humor with another person, and the, the you know we get all the social humor on the internet, and we're mm -hmm. sending out emails, and part of it is evaluating the receptivity of the other. The stronger your bond with another person, the closer the relationship, the more you can use humor that might be for some people off-putting. The more you can use a little bit of humor that's at the far edge. So when we look at crisis and you're using humor, I, I think one aspect is important to understand who you're using humor with and what level of receptivity do they have to that humor. Mm. And the social connection you have with another person is part of that. I, if you would like, I can go on and talk about some other evaluation criteria, and then I want to back oh, yeah, up please, please, please do, humor yeah. when someone has, is afraid versus when they're anxious, because uh, those are two distinct ways of using humor or not using humor. Oh, uh, yeah. Is that okay to go on? Or oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, please do. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So in, a, the, in the mid 1990s, I wrote an article about humor and crisis. And to evaluate someone's receptivity to humor when there's a crisis, there are three at that time criteria that I looked at. And the one I just talked about, social um, bonding, I would add as a fourth. The first is how close or far away is the individual physically from the crisis? And I call this a proximal distance. So if you're living in New York, your experience of the crisis is very different than if you're living in some small town in, say, Iowa, mm -hmm. that you're far away from the crisis. And if you're far from the crisis, you not be, having not been engaged in it, you're more receptive to humor about it. So you might be able to use humor looking at the crisis in New York when you're living in Iowa and be the individual would receive that humor more openly mm -hmm. than someone in New York when they're in the trenches and they're physically there where it's happening. So one criteria for all of us using humor to look at is the proximal distance or physical distance the individual experiencing the crisis is from the crisis. You know, again, are they local to it in New York or are they far away? Sure. A second criteria to look at is how emotionally involved are they? In New York, if you are a medical professional, you are deeply emotionally involved in the crisis at this point. You are seeing people very, very sick. You are seeing people die. And that brings on an emotional charge to it, which would be different than someone even living in New York, but not knowing anybody that's, that has the virus, for example, mm -hmm. or again, somebody living in another part of the country that doesn't have anyone in their uh, particular lives that, that are involved in the crisis, that have um, uh, some connection emotionally. Right. So the more emotionally distant someone is to the crisis, the more receptive they'll be to the use of humor within that crisis or during that crisis. And then the third criteria, and that's the one that we see, I think, most obviously, is what I label temporal distance. That is, how far in time are you away from the crisis? Right now in New York, they are immersed in the crisis presently and Detroit and New Orleans, across the country, we have hotspots 
where they're involved in the crisis in this moment. Mm -hmm. That's a time when people are less receptive to humor when the time is immediate. But a month from now, when I can assume that our, the peak in New York and the peak in Detroit and the peak in Chicago and the peak in New Orleans will have passed, people will be more receptive to humor uh, during the time when they're farther in time from the experience of the crisis. So right now in my, my thinking, there are these four areas, the proximal distance, the emotional distance, the temporal distance, and then the social bond between the sender and the receiver, mm -hmm. all of which temper the receiver's experience of the humor. So does that make sense? That makes absolute sense um, on that. Now for the people that are, say, a little more distanced, but they got their own type of crisis. Maybe they're not going through the same crisis that people are in New York, but they've been locked up uh, for three weeks and they've been using a lot of humor to cope. Will there be a certain point in time where they'll reach, you know, it's a, maybe a different kind of crisis, but things just aren't fun anymore and they don't want to use humor to cope? If, does that make sense? Like, yeah, I think yeah. and it, it's easier at the very beginning of something to find kind of like the funny, but as you're trudging along and you're like, this just isn't funny anymore. I want my kids to go back to school because they might end up in a hole in the backyard if they don't. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, well, I no, that's, no but, that, that, that is it, something it, that pe people <laughs> are experiencing. And I think what you're getting at is making funny of the situation that you're in and when it's easier to make funny of it when you're in it and it's less threatening. Mm -hmm. So for example, you know, talking about digging a hole for your kids in the backyard, what you're talking about is the absurdity and the ludicrousness of that and having your kids at home with you while maybe difficult and strenuous and all of that, it's not threatening. Mm -hmm. So there's a difference between a, a, threat that appears as a survival threat and a threat that appears as a much more minor threat, a manageable threat. Mm -hmm. And when we look at crisis, when the crisis hits, the first emotion is generally is fear. And when you're afraid, you're afraid of something that is a, either a realistic threat or a perceived threat. And let's just look at realistic threats right now. And you have to ask yourself, is the coronavirus a realistic threat? And the answer would be, you bet it is. Mm -hmm. you know, people are dying, people are getting deathly ill, it is spreading uh, real quickly. And what that does is activates what we might call the reptilian brain, the basic brain. And fear comes up immediately, and then with fear, We, what are we going to do when we're afraid of something where you're going to fight it, uh, we're going to run from it, or we might freeze, the fight, flight, or freeze reaction. Mm -hmm. With the coronavirus, some people may have taken flight. They may be leaving the country or going to other areas of the country that are safer. But mm -hmm. what we mostly do with this particular threat is that we are fighting it. And one way we're fighting it is by preparing and preparing means to look at what do we need to do to, um, to keep ourselves safe. 
again, this reptilian brain is a basic survival brain instinct that occurs. So what do we do to protect ourselves? Well, we're social isolating. We are washing our hands all the time. And that's the first phase. And during the fear phase, when someone is really afraid, their resources, and I'm talking now about their physical and emotional resources, contract. Mm -hmm. and when they contract, their thinking process is very directed. It's convergent. It's narrowly focused. When that happens, they are not receptive to humor because humor requires a broader, divergent thinking an expanded mind. And when your mind is focused on survival, you are not listening to humor or you're not processing humor, you're not receiving it. Mm -hmm. So we have to deal with the fear part first. And once we get out of being afraid, in other words, now we're looking at, uh, I'm sitting in my home and right now I'm on the home, I am not afraid of getting the coronavirus in my home at this point. The, then we move to feeling anxiety. Fear is about feeling in the moment, and it's an imminent danger in the moment. But anxiety is about being afraid of the future, a danger that will present itself in the future. So if I'm afraid that I might catch the coronavirus now, I might go out with a mask if I go out, or I may not go out at all. Mm -hmm. In this stage, I'm now able to begin to expand my thinking. I'm not contracted in the survival mode of the reptilian brain, but I'm now in the more reason reasonable, logical mode of the cerebral cortex, the uh, mammalian brain, the mammal brain. Uh, those are simplistic terms, but that's uh, basically, I think, how this system works. Mm -hmm. So when I'm in this mammal brain process, now I'm feeling anxious. And then with anxiety, one of the strategies to reduce anxiety is preparation. Mm -hmm. um, I talk about five strategies to, to manage anxiety in general, but the most functional of those five is preparation. Mm -hmm. So if I'm anxious about what the future will bring, I'm anxious about catching the coronavirus, I will prepare. If I'm anxious about running low on supplies, I will stock up. I will buy the toilet paper, the paper towels, uh, the rice, the flour, and all those things that people are now out there buying because I'm anxious, feeling anxious motivates me to do something. Mm -hmm. At this stage, as my feeling anxious in, um, is present, my thinking is able to reappear in a more cognitive level, making me receptive to humor. When I'm receptive to humor, humor has this great power to reduce anxiety. And it reduces anxiety, which we're all experiencing with this virus, or most of us anyway, are experiencing with the virus. It reduces the anxiety in three ways. The first is with the experience of humor, and I know you've heard me say this a million times because this is kind of my thing, but when we experience humor, one of the things that we often experience is laughter. Mm -hmm. And laughter is a physical response. And that physical response also creates a physiological response. And specific to anxiety or stress, uh, sometimes we use those words together. They're a little different, but I'm going to talk about them basically as one. But with okay. anxiety and stress, what laughter does is physically, 
it relieves muscle tension. When we laugh, our muscles contract, they release, they contract, we release. And after 5, 10, 20 minutes of a good, deep, heartfelt laughter, we feel physically relaxed. Mm -hmm. So humor reduces stress by activating laughter. Also, as you're aware, the physical act of laughing causes a physiological reaction, a biochemical reaction, where serum cortisol appears to be reduced. So the stress hormone of cortisol is reduced with the part felt laughter. And then the, another impact physically of the laughter component of humor is that certain antibodies, and in particular, some antibodies that fight upper respiratory disease, are increased with laughter. Mm -hmm. So when we look at the coronavirus being a, a respiratory problem, mm -hmm. you would think perhaps one way of inoculating yourself to the virus, and it, to some extent, would be to engage in a lot of laughter. Now, what we mm -hmm. don't know for sure is how long do these antibodies that are secreted with laughter last? Do they last, last 20 minutes, an hour, two days, five days? but it certainly seems reasonable to engage in laughter as a way to reduce stress and anxiety uh, physically as well as physiologically. Mm -hmm. So that, all of that is one component of how humor can help us during the coronavirus. That's, in, that's interesting to me to think that uh, it actually uh, produces antibodies. That, so if I'm going to go to the store, I should probably watch an episode of Seinfeld beforehand. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> watch my, watch my hands. Whatever, you know, whatever sitcom excites you. <laughs> that sounds a lot more enjoyable than just being anxious about it. I do see like people's, you know, posts online as far as like, they're not leaving the house. And when they do, they have, you know, so much anxiety about, you know, going to the store or doing anything that uh, I would think that anything that could reduce that would be helpful because I, I, I the more anxious you are, I, I just, um, that, that stress level uh, that doesn't put your immune system in a good in a good state at all. Correct, correct. So when you do feel anxious, you do end up with the, the cortisol being secreted, and all of that is functional if you are preparing to uh, fight something that's a threat. Mm -hmm. But when you're not fighting a threat and you're merely needing to be prepared for the threat in front of you, then you you, you want to do whatever it is to prepare. And again, that might be wearing a mask or. Uh, 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 washing hands, but you're right, an inoculation could be to use humor, which we know reduces the stress hormone, even simple distraction, which is another way to manage anxiety. It's not a long-term functional way, but in the short term works pretty well. If you listen to music as you go to the store, it listening to the music interferes with the thought patterns that cause anxiety. Mm -hmm. Most people don't understand that anxiety is not caused by situations. The coronavirus is not causing people to get anxious and stressed. The coronavirus is perceived by us as a threat, and it's the way we perceive the threat that generates anxiety and stress. And there's all sorts of evidence to that. It's pretty clear that it's the cognitions that cause the distress and not the situation that causes the distress. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's, I didn't know that. Thank you for sharing that. See, I feel smarter now. I've got a piece of Steve Sultanoff's <laughs> brain right now. So uh, th let's shift a little bit and think about like the long haul, because I think that right now, uh, you know, we've been doing this roughly a month. 
maybe a little bit less, uh, three weeks or so. Uh, but there's that whole unknown factor of how long is this going to last? Um, you know, how long are we going to be sequestered? You know, how many people are going to die? I mean, there's, there's just a lot of unknowns out there for people, which I, again, you know, is causing some, uh, some anxiety for people. What are some strategies they can use to kind of deal with the, the long haul, the unknown? That's a great question. And I'm going to answer it from a psychological standpoint. But before I do, let me just talk about the humor impact. So what people can do for the long haul is continue to, uh, to use humor. And as you use humor, you're replenishing your own what are called psychological antibodies. Mm -hmm. So when we experience humor, we begin to think differently and feel differently, and that helps uh, booster these psychological antibodies. So when we look at the experience of humor, I mentioned laughter. If we look at the emotional experience of humor, when you experience humor, some people uh, feel what I call mirth, the uplift, the joy, the pleasure, the delight, and distressing emotion like depression and anxiety can't occupy the same psychological space as mirth. So if you're able to weave in uh, humor into the fabric of your life, then the long haul becomes more manageable because you will feel uh, fewer distressing emotions. You will feel less anxious and less depressed, less angry, because humor modulates the emotional part. Also, humor modulates. Can, can I? Can I? Can I? Uh, moments ago, I was telling you how situations don't cause emotions, but the cognitions associated with the situation do cause the emotions. Humor also activates wit, which is a cognitive process and involves perspective. Mm -hmm. So much of the humor process involves perspective. So many of the cartoons I'm getting about toilet paper and, and some of the one-liners I'm getting about people having to, um, to cut back. I, I just got one I, I thought was really cute. Now, let me see if I can find it here. Um, uh, well, while you're finding that, can I, I, ask I can't find it, but basically well, what well, it said is executives are having to cut back. They're now having to play miniature golf. And it's a perspective. So with wit, the, the element of humor of wit, you gain perspective. Ziggy cartoons, peanut cartoons are really known for the wit, the perspective on the world. So when we look at the long-term effects of the coronavirus, if you can gain your perspective, you can reduce the long-term distressing or negative effects of the coronavirus. I mean, there's still going to be some recovery time and it's still going to be obviously uh, difficulties along the way. But when you engage humor and you activate the laughter, the mirth, or the wit, all three of those will help that long term. Now, let me mention something that goes along with that long term. And that is if people can embrace what are called true core beliefs, they will do better in the long term. And I've I've been watching a lot of uh, CNN, and I've watched a lot of Governor Cuomo, and I've watched a lot of President Trump, and I'm, I'm watching to understand how they have perspective on this whole thing. And mm -hmm. something Cuomo does is that when he does his presentation, he gives people core beliefs that are true. So, for example, um, these are direct quotes. He said, we will manage this obstacle. 
that is a positive core belief. And it's true. No matter what happens from here on out, we will manage it. Now, there may be negative um, outcomes along the way, and he, he says that, but we will manage the obstacle. He says on another quote, we are going to make it through. We are going to be okay. All of those things are true. We will get through. We will be okay. Now, here's the hard part. Even if you die, you are okay. In other words, we are going to be okay includes that it's possible that part of being okay could mean that you die. And that's very hard for people to embrace. But when people are able to accept these positive core beliefs, as opposed to thinking it's not going to be okay, uh, things are going to um, be ruined. Well, some things may be ruined, but life won't be ruined. Mm -hmm. So that's part of what people can do for looking to the long term is embracing, we will get through this. In fact, every person that listens to this podcast and every person that you know and I know has always gotten through every life's challenge that's been presented to them. Mm -hmm. Maybe not gotten through it as well as they would have liked, but mm -hmm. they got through it. So for that long term that you were asking about, the integration of humor in the way that I was describing, as well as embracing core beliefs that are true rather than beliefs um, that are not true, like we're not going to get through this. That's mm -hmm. not true. We will get through it with whatever bad outcomes come along the way. So does, um, I want to go back uh, for a second because I, I want to look at that aspect of core beliefs and how that relates or ties into having a sense of hope and maybe how hope can help um, people move a little bit further. But going back to what you were talking about as far as the different emotions uh, not being able to occupy the same space at the same time in your head. Is that what you were saying with uh, when you're, you know, that, that, that piece of mirth where if you're, if you've got that, then it's, you can't be feeling anxious that those two things can't coexist at the same time. That is exactly what I'm saying. It may be momentary, but even for that moment or five minutes or whatever that you're experiencing mirth, whatever distressing emotion you might have had, whether it be feeling anxious, feeling angry, feeling depressed, dissolves when you're experiencing mirth. And uh, if I can digress and, and give you a quick example of that, oh, there's, a, there's a beautiful movie out there. Many people have seen it, um, Steel Magnolias. And it's about the relationship of four or five women and there's a scene, which is one of the classic scenes in the movie. It's called the graveyard scene. And Sally Field is walking uh, along a pathway. And she has just lost her young daughter, who uh, uh, was played by, now I'm blanking on the name. but Julie, Julie Roberts. Julie Roberts, yes. So her adult daughter, who's just had a child and has died, and Sally Field is uh, angry, and she's saying, you know, I'm just so angry. Why did this have to happen? This is horrible. This is awful. And she starts uh, pounding her fist in her hand. And meanwhile, her friends are following her. And as they're following her, it's important to know that Shirley MacLaine plays this pretty um, crusty, kind of irritable uh, uh, friend um, character. And while Sally Field is pounding her hand, um, Olivia Dukakis, one of the other friends, pushes Shirley MacLaine forward as Sally Field is saying, I just want to hit someone. I want 
and they hit someone. And Olivia Dukakis pushes Shirley McLean forward and says, hit her, hit her. <laughs> and you see the shock on Sally Field's face. And then she bursts out laughing. Mm -hmm. You can see in that moment that her anger dissolves. Now, does it take away the pain that she's lost her daughter? Absolutely not. But what it takes away is the suffering that's associated with the pain. And one other really quick example is in interpersonal relationships, and this is typical with a man and a woman, a woman is really angry with a man and she's saying things and yelling and she's just so angry and he does something humorous or funny. And her immediate comment is, don't make me laugh, I wanna be angry. Mm -hmm. Intuitively, we know that when we laugh, or in my words, broader, experience mirth, uh, the, the emotional side, it dissolves the emotion. So yes, um, adding mirth into uh, your fabric will dissolve emotional distress. Awesome. I, thanks for clarifying that, because I just want to make sure I got that right. Now, going with the core beliefs um, and taking stock on maybe the things that you've gone through in your life and uh, what got you through those. Um, uh, Cause what I heard you saying in that is with those core beliefs maybe becomes an element of hope. Um, uh, it was that uh, a piece of that uh, looking forward that helps people get through uh, knowing that, you know, we will get through. Is that what those core beliefs do is help kind of generate some hope? Well, in this narrow context with these specific core beliefs, yes. Uh, there are many core beliefs that are not about hope, but they're just about reality. But your, your point is very well taken, which is that when people are optimistic, when they're hopeful, they do much better emotionally. In fact, let me talk about one other uh, uh, quality of humanity that's very, very healing, and that's gratitude. That when people are grateful. So if during the coronavirus, if every day someone can look at uh, one thing that they feel hopeful about, one thing that they feel grateful about, or two things that they feel hopeful about, and two things are grateful, mm -hmm. that that will reduce emotional distress. That will help modulate that long-term negative effect of, uh, psychologically of the coronavirus. But I really like that you brought up the whole concept of hope because hope and optimism are key aspects in uh, mental wellness. So why does gratitude do that? What, what's, what's, uh, I understand the concept, but you know, what happens for us when we actually take that time out to you know, show a little gratitude or just be mindful of the things that we have that are going right? Okay, well now you've asked a challenging question. You're asking for the mechanism of why it works? Yeah, I would just a little bit more, in, a little insight as to, you know, because I understand that it's, it's good to be grateful, but I just, you know, a little bit of the why. Why does that work? Well, I actually don't know if we've uncovered the mechanism as to why it works. We do have quite a bit of research that shows that simple gratitude, like people writing down three things at the end of the day that they feel grateful for, uh, people who do that are less depressed, or when they're depressed, they become less depressed than people who do. But why does it work? Uh, here's my theoretical answer. I don't know that this is uh, either been studied or the correct answer, but from my understanding of cognitive process, of the way we think, that probably what's going on is that when we're grateful, we have positive thinking. Mm -hmm. And positive thinking uh, 
is uh, is uh, emotionally beneficial. Negative thinking clearly is related to uh, emotional distress. And people who have negative mm -hmm. thinking, uh, we can connect negative thinking to anxiety, to depression, to anger. You tell me you're angry and in 10 minutes, I can tell you your underlying thinking pattern that makes you angry, which is distinct from the thinking pattern of depression and anxiety. And I can mm -hmm. tell you all of those. But when we get to gratitude, the positive thinking, I think that it works partly because the biologically, we are um, designed to have a negative bias and that negative bias is designed to cause physiological reactions, including distressing emotions, so that we protect ourselves, so that we maximize our potential for survival. In the end, everything comes back to survival. Everything we do, everything we say, always, if you trace it back, comes back to survival. We are um, primarily here to survive and then secondarily to procreate. So, um, well, I guess maybe there. <laughs> uh, but those two things. So uh, what happens when you shift from the negative bias is that in having a positive bias, the body doesn't need to be charged. It doesn't need to be burning energy that is energy for protection and caretaking. Mm -hmm. The positive cognition allows us to expand, as I was referring to kind of earlier, to be greater divergent thinkers, to think outside the box, as it were, to be creative, to build things, to uh, come up with new ideas, to be, um, you know, a unique thinker. So mm -hmm. I, and that's kind of a real broad answer, but I think gratitude is, is part of a dimension, as, as well as hope, that moves us away from I'm going to go back to that reptilian brain, that mm -hmm. autopilot negative perception of the world, or protective maybe is a better way of seeing it, protective position toward the world, which musters our energy, but causes there to be a burn off of, of energy. Okay. I see. I think that's a great theoretical answer. And I would have, you could have just said, Hey, this is, this is the real reason. And I just would have taken it as face value because that was all sounded like the real shit to me. I like that. <laughs> well, I, I do that all the time though. I, I used to cr teach creative problem solving. And when I did, I would tell my class, um, I have the answer to everything. And I do. There's no question that you can ask me that I can't answer it. Of course, maybe you want it to be an accurate answer, but I can answer everything. <laughs> That's and awesome. I do make stuff up, but I, I try to tell people afterwards that I made it up, but I'm pretty good at it. Well, I thought that, that sounded good to me. Now, shifting a little bit back towards humor, are there any downsides to uh, using humor to you know, cope during this time? I mean, uh, uh, or things people should be worried about? Yes. Um, I guess the biggest downside to humor is I would see it, uh, well, there, there may be two. One would be being so far off on your timing that the other person feels, um, um, I'm, I'm sorry, I heard a weird noise here in my office and I didn't know what it was and I still don't. Okay. Um, uh, and now, hey, Chip, I just completely lost my train of thought. Can Down, you give me the question? Downsides, downsides to humor. You're talking about timing. Oh. Yeah, okay, so if the timing is off, that the, per the person can't receive the humor, they may experience you using humor with them as a demonstration of not understanding. Okay. 
And this is common, um, not just in the coronavirus, but when anybody has a crisis. So for example, if you have somebody diagnosed with cancer, and you say, oh, you know, I know you were just diagnosed with cancer. Well, you know, think of how much money you're going to save on haircuts. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a joke that is common in a cancer recovery group. But at the time the person is experiencing cancer, it's that they experience that kind of humor as not understanding this, these, uh, the difficulty that person's experiencing. So that would be one thing with the coronavirus, uh, thinking about if somebody got the virus and, and making jokes about them having the virus, I think that would be a negative side to humor. Okay. The other part would be humor that, that targets the other person. Generally, when we look at safe humor, we look at a safe target is the situation, a safe target is yourself, but a, a more uh, unsafe target is the other person. And that's modulated by how close you are with the other person and how much uh, you know, you're bonded with them, et cetera. But in general, you want to avoid humor that's targeting the other person and targeting meaning put down humor. Mm -hmm. uh, humor that uh, like, I don't know, uh, blonde jokes would be put down humor. Mm -hmm. uh, to use humor that in some way sends a message. You're trying to send a message to the other person that's, that you think is right and they think is wrong. You're trying to be corrective. Those are some kinds of humor that you would want to avoid uh, at any time, but especially when somebody is really distressed or highly anxious or even worse, fearful. Right. Okay. I mean, I was just you know, thinking about uh, from what you were saying before is you know, the distance, you know, your distance away, like for me in Wisconsin, things aren't as dire as they are like for my son that lives in New York. So perhaps like he wouldn't, if I thought something was funny about, you know, some of the things that are being experienced here, it might not be taken the same way for people that are in the epicenter of everything that's going on. Um, so maybe just, uh, I was thinking like some situational awareness of how you're using your humor, if that makes sense. Well, absolutely. You, you've really hit the nail on the head. That is absolutely correct. And your son may forgive you for what he perceives as insensitive humor, but where it becomes your responsibility is to try and understand where his head might be being there in the city of the epicenter and therefore perhaps curtailing some of the humor that you might use and yet using other that you think um, knowing him mm -hmm. that he would be more receptive to. That might help him, you know, uh, might give him that distraction from the things that he might be, you know, looking at. Right. And, and not only distraction, but more important relief. So again, the uh, possible emotional relief or, or perspective or the um, physical from laughter. So humor can be used for distraction but its potency goes far beyond distraction. Awesome. Now, let's, um, your, your best advice for people uh, where they can mine their humor, because I, I know I'm a master at this, and I think that's important for people. You know, they might, they might be feeling anxious, feel anxious or, or, you know, they're, they're uh, a lot of stuff. Let me interrupt you. I'm, I'm getting some really weird reverberation sound right now. Oh, I don't hear anything. But, oh, okay. Uh, it's gone. Now it's okay. I, right. I didn't hear anything you just said. Oh, uh, looking at the, uh, your best advice for where people can mine their uh, mind for humor, because I know that you're an expert at that. 
uh, where can people that are maybe feeling anxious, where, where would you recommend they go to find, find things to help them? Okay, well, there are different levels of finding humor. And I think one of the easiest is to, um, for instance, do a search on the internet and just put coronavirus humor into Google and see what pops up. So that mm -hmm. would be a beginning of finding humor. Then another stage of finding humor would be to let friends and family know that you are looking for or interested in humor. Um, being in the humor field, I'm um, inundated with humor every day. But if I were to put out an email to um, you know, people on my email list and say, hey, I, I really would like some humor. If some, you, get, you get some humor, send it my way. So these are a couple of relatively passive ways of bringing humor to the person. Mm -hmm. Then another way is to share the humor you learn. Either send out an email with a cartoon or a joke or during a Zoom call, be prepared with a piece of humor that you learned that you want to share, whether it's a joke or a story, or pick up. Um, there's this device that was actually invented in, the, I think, the 1920s or maybe in the 1800s uh, called a telephone. And most <laughs> people have forgotten about it, but um, most people can use their cameras as telephones. So <laughs> if you have a smart smartphone, um, pick that up and call someone and ask them to tell you a joke or a story. And if they don't have one, share yours with them. So mm -hmm. there's the passive being receptive to humor. And if that's what you wish, that's the first step. You will also find great benefit by beginning to share humor. Now, some of people listening to this may be saying, oh yeah, but I can't tell a joke. All right, don't tell a joke share a cartoon, or I'm getting inundated with one-liners. So use a couple of, of one-liners, either related to the, humor, to the coronavirus or to another piece of humor. So, so you practice offering humor, and you can do that also when you're out with people. For example, I went out yesterday and I had a homemade uh, mask, which was a handkerchief and some Echo um, clips, those black clips that clip paper together. And mm -hmm. I had that, those clips, and then I had a strap behind my back, and I, I had it that way. It looked pretty silly. And I'm not sure I want to ruin my handkerchief yet, but I'm thinking I need to draw a, um, a curly mustache on that. <laughs> and then I thought, well, gee, I have a collection of clown noses. I can easily pin a clown nose on front of my mask. And so when I go out, I'm going to have that. I also have a Darth Vader mask, and I'm going to put a, uh, a coronavirus mask over my Darth Vader mask, and I'm going to go out. So these are simple things that you can take some, some action if, you know, if it's your style. Now, it might not be. Mm -hmm. If it is, you can bring a smile to other people's faces when you're out and about, uh, of course, and six feet apart. Yeah, absolutely. That's funny. I, I would love to see um, if you do the Darth Vader thing, take a picture and send it to me because I want to see that. Okay, you got it. I will do that. <laughs> well, I really enjoyed uh, spending a little time with you today. Uh, really great insights on, I think, you know, from my perspective on, on you know, what we're currently going to want to what's really going on in mind and how to deal with some things properly. Um, if at this day people want to connect with you, I mean, uh, where can they get them some more of Dr. Steve Soltanoff? 
Probably the easiest thing would be to um, go to my website. Um, unfortunately, my website's a little bit static these days. Um, I haven't gotten to add things, but uh, it's uh, www.humormatters.com, humor with H-U-M-O-R-M-A-T-T-E-R-S.com. And the purpose of that website is to provide information about humor and to provide a whole lot of humor. And there are no click throughs and there are no ads or anything like that and nothing really promotional. So I would recommend that people go to the website if they'd like to contact me. Um, Otherwise, if they would like to contact me by email, I'm going to risk giving out an email address. I don't do this very often, but I think for people listening to this podcast, that would be fine. And that email address would be steve, S-T-E-V-E, at humormatters.com. Awesome. Well, again, thanks for spending some time with me today. I, I, I always enjoy talking to you because I always learn so much. Thanks for, uh, thanks for making my mind a little bit bigger. <laughs> okay, I, I'm happy to do it, Chip. I always enjoy talking with you. Well, there you go. Dr. Steve Sultanoff, what I tell you, one of the smartest guys I know, and I love his ability to take really uh, difficult or abstract things and bring them down to my level. Not that I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. Okay, I, I really am not, but he can bring it down to my level. So thank you, Steve, for sharing your brain with us on the podcast. I'm going to encourage you to check out Steve on his website. And as you're going forward, remember, you're not alone. Um, humor is one of those things that can bring us all together. I'm going to encourage you to go to our website, aath.org, and join our community. Yeah, we're sharing humor all the time as we're going through this pandemic. Check us out at aath.org. We would love to hear from you. So until next time, this is Chip Lutz saying, hey, we'll keep the laugh on for you. Thanks for listening to Laugh Box. If you'd like to learn more about AATH, visit our website at www.aath.org or email the host at chip at unconventionalleader.com. And if you'd like to be particularly awesome, leave us a review on iTunes and or tell your friends about how awesome the podcast is unless you didn't think it was awesome and then just keep it your little secret or tell them it was awesome and then laugh to yourself about how you're going to be wasting an hour of their time while you're out doing something productive like handing out heads of cabbage at a Miley Cyrus concert (laughs) thanks again for listening and may the farce be with you